So welcome to the Lutheran History Podcast, where we cover over 500 years of Lutheran history. We hear new stories, examine old heroes of faith, and dig into the who, how, what, and why of history making. So whether you are a Lutheran seeking to understand your faith's rich roots, a history lover, or a person looking for stories of trials, tragedies, or triumphs, you'll find what you're looking for right here. Our guest for today is Pastor Craig Ferkenstead, who has served as the Secretary of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod since 1996 and has been deeply involved in sharing the story of Lutheran history, especially the history of his own Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Uh, Pastor Ferkenstead, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. So today we're going to talk about uh, a book that came out for the 100th anniversary of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod, which I'll just refer to now as the ELS. Uh, the book was entitled Proclaim His Wonders. Now in your preface, you, notice, you noted that this was the fourth published anniversary history of the ELS. Uh, what need does this book fill or what is its purpose? Being that this was the centennial, it did become the fourth book, one for the 25th. There'd been one for the 50th, one for the 75th. And of course, here came the centennial. Each one of the four volumes has a different purpose. For the 25th anniversary, there was a book published called Grace for Grace. And that was really the defense of why the ELS was organized in 1918. For the 50th anniversary, A City Set on a Hill was the very scholarly book that was written with the documentation of why did the Synod exist, what are the documents for that, and great detail about what was happening in the Synodical Conference in the 1950s and 1960s. The 75th anniversary book, Built on a Rock in 1993, was written as a popular history of the Synod itself. And so now when you came to the centennial, what was left to do and proclaim as wonders became a pictorial history. And so it served a different purpose. It's not was not intended as the scholarly work, but was intended to put photographs and the well-known pictures that we see in our minds together with the stories from the previous books and the previous years of history themselves. Different way of writing the history. Sometimes you pick up a history book today that basically tells the stories through pictures and little more. And that was the original intent, but there got to be more commentary added to it and developed into the form that it's at. So it was written as a new history in a different form in order to reach out more to a new generation as the Synod ages. Yeah, and I think when I looked at it, it really did fulfill that purpose. I was really drawn in. Not only were the pictures interesting, but the formatting and the variety of using uh, quotes and original documents, and, and it was just very visually appealing. Unfortunately, in a podcast, there's none of that benefit. So I do encourage our listeners, if you're at all interested, uh, to check out the links in the video or the podcast description, uh, which where you can find a, a way to get, get a copy of the book. It's well worth uh, adding to your Lutheran history library. Something unique is that Yes, it was intended first to be written with pictures, and then it was going to have direct quotations only as a banner on the page to lead you through. Well, commentary was needed. 
but it means there's kind of three ways that one can look at the book to receive, the, read the history. One is just by looking at the pictures. One is the pictures and those banners that are the direct, direct quotation from that time frame, And the third one is to read through with then the connecting commentary. Yeah. And I, like I said, I think it did a really great job doing that. But that being said, that it is a pictorial history, uh, for our purposes, we're going to have to have a somewhat different purpose for the, the podcast today. Uh, our purpose today, I, I believe, is to basically give a brief overview uh, of the history of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod. This will be the first uh, podcast episode where we are focusing on the topic. So we'll, we'll use this as an opportunity to talk about that uh, as well. So our next question is, while the book is clearly celebrating a hundred year anniversary, you have a timeline in the book and it begins all the way back in 1844. Why does your timeline start back then? The ELS has always observed a double anniversary and a double set of dates. 1844 is actually when we kind of, in many regards, consider the start of Lutheranism amongst Norwegian Lutherans. It was in September of 1844 that the first ordained clergyman from Norway conducted a communion service in the United States. It was at a place called Kushkanon, which is southeast of Madison, Wisconsin. In the late third, 1830s and 1840s is when the mass migration was beginning from Norway. So he was the first ordained clergyman to come and conducted that communion service. So that's the 1844 date where the history begins. I said we have double anniversary dates. The first one, however, is 1853. That's when the Norwegian Synod was organized. The ELS considers itself to be the continuation of the Norwegian Synod, and that was the reorganization took place in 1918. And we observe both anniversaries. So in 1993, would that be the right? In 2003, rather, we observed the 150th anniversary. In 2018, we observed the 100th anniversary. Double the fun, huh? Right. <laughs> so a, a prominent figure um, from that first anniversary, the 1853 anniversary, we, we, I see him again and again in the book, um, is Ulrich Wilhelm Koren. Uh, why is he an important figure for the ELS, even though he died several years before 1918? Pastor Koren was considered to be one of the three founding fathers of the Norwegian Synod. There were three, H.A. Preuss, who living all three, or Preuss lived in Wisconsin, H.A. Preuss. He was president of the Synod for many years. J.A. Ottison, who was also at Kushkanon, he gave a great deal of pastoral leadership, publication of, author of several publications. And then U.V. Koren. Koren was the first of the ordained clergy from Norway to live west of the Mississippi River near Decorah, Iowa. He was really the theologian of the synod itself. He became president of the Synod in 1894, served until his death in 1910. But it is he who exerted a great deal of 
leadership, a great deal of direction for the old Norwegian synod. He has held an especially hard, high regard by us in the reorganized Norwegian synod or the ELS because in the years leading up to his death is when the talk was of the merger that would end the Norwegian Synod. And he is the in, of the three is the individual who was still living and spoke very firmly that any merger had to be on a firm doctrinal basis of God's word. So our next section then is what are some of the milestone events in the history of the Norwegian Synod prior to 1918? The Norwegian Senate itself existed only, what, 64 years? So it was not a long-lived body. In its day, it was comparable or larger than many of the synods that were around it. But of those important dates themselves, the early Norwegians, when we, they arrived here, first of all needed a place to train their pastors. They realized they were not going to get support from the mother church in Norway as they had hoped. And so they began investigating. They began the process for doing that. Four years after the synod was formed, they reached an arrangement with Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. So 1857 became a very important date as seminary training began there and continued in St. Louis for many years. The start of the Civil War, however, prompted the implementation of a dream that the Senate had had, and that was the establishment of their own college. And that became Luther College in Decorah, Iowa in 1861. And that became the premier school of the Norwegian Synod itself. Then you continue onward, and the Synodical Conference was formed in 1872. The Norwegian Synod, along with Missouri Synod, Wisconsin Synod, Ohio Synod, all became charter members of that Synodical Conference, which was the unifying effect at that point in time. But things continued to march onward. 1876, a seminary was formed. Today, maybe not today so much, but it became known as Luther Seminary. And it was first established in Madison, Wisconsin, as I said, in 1876. It then moved to Minnesota and after 1917 merged and today is a part of Luther Theological Seminary. Big event, however, that took place in the Norwegian Synod, or that we remember in particular, would be the election controversy. And that was in the 1880s. And that was a very divisive element within the Norwegian Synod. It went throughout, the controversy raged within the Synodical Conference, but did not have great effect in either Missouri or Wisconsin Synods. But Ohio Synod withdrew from the Synodical Conference. The Norwegian Synod also withdrew, but the reason for the withdrawal was not that there was a disagreement in doctrine with Missouri and Wisconsin Synods, but rather the Norwegians wanted to deal with this internally. 
They hoped to keep it from dividing the synod, which they were not successful in, but also wanted to have the discussion in the Norwegian language that they figured would be very beneficial to them. As you're well aware, there were two thoughts of eternal election that floated about, we'll say, at that point in time. The one is that of the formula of Concord that says that our election, that our salvation is completely by God's grace alone in Jesus Christ. But there was a second view that became known as in view of faith. That was a terminology that was used by John Gerhardt, amongst others. But amongst Norwegians, it was a man by Eric Pontopidon, who had written the most widely used catechism in Norway, and by deference then by the Norwegian Americans, the United States. And he explained that our election to salvation was in view of faith. That was not intended to be in contradiction to what the formula of Concord says, but rather was seeking to explain how God preserves us in faith until the end of our life. And so it was a different way of saying our salvation is by God's grace and Christ alone. Unfortunately, in the 1880s, especially among some in the Norwegian Synod, it became misused to say that human attitude played a factor in all of this. And so there was a question being said, well, is our salvation completely by God's grace or do sinful human beings somehow play a part in our salvation? And it was misused within the Norwegian Synod of erupting with this election controversy as it has been known since that point in time. Within the Norwegian Synod, by the time the dust had settled, about one-third of the congregations were gone, a third of the pastors were gone, and most of the remaining congregations were divided. And so to this day, if you were in any town that has Norwegian heritage, you will often find two Norwegian Lutheran churches. And they may come from that time frame, and they may be standing side by side. And so that is the big thing that happened in the Norwegian Synod in the 1880s. The Synod very quickly, however, did regain the size that it had had before the division itself. Immigration was still going strong and the numbers were there. There was always hope that that breach within the Norwegian Synod and the group that had left would be healed. And there were free conferences that were held. There were formal discussions that were held from 1905 until 1910, while Corin was still living. It is Corin himself who said these discussions haven't led to any fruitful result. It's time to end them all. And they did end. However, two years later, they began again. And very quickly, then there became agreements that led to a merger of the Norwegian Lutheran church bodies in 1917. And with that, we no longer had Luther College that entered the merger church body, Luther Seminary, 
itself merged with Luther Theological, into Luther Theological Seminary, and then becomes a whole new story and a new beginning. So a follow-up question then, maybe uh, just to understand a bit more, why did Norwegian American Lutherans want to merge together? You know, it wasn't possible to be one body previously because of doctrinal issues mostly, but what gave them that, that push to, to come together? There were three main strains of Lutherans in the United States. The Norwegian Synod, of which we consider ourselves the successor, was the Orthodox body, trained clergy, formal worship service. On the other extreme, there was a group known as the Haugi Synod, would be the followers of an itinerant preacher in Norway. They did not espouse an educated clergy. Their worship service was much more informal, and so very different church body. And then in the middle, there was a group, the group that came out of the Norwegian Synod, that came from elsewhere, that did not share quite the same orthodoxy and practice itself. But a couple things had then happened. One is in 1904, Norway again obtained its full independence, the nation of Norway. In 1814, they had adopted a constitution, which interestingly after the United States is the oldest constitution in the world. But they adopted their own constitution, but shared a king with Sweden. In 1904, they received their own king and there was a strong push and feeling of Norwegian nationalism. There was a great pride. We are Norwegians. As Norwegians, we should all be together. And that feeling in many ways overrode everything else. There also was probably a weariness that was there from the controversy of the 1880s, so 30 years earlier, that there were still sentiments that they wanted to put behind, to take care of, let's end any of that division that existed itself. There was a new generation of leaders, Audison, Corin, and Price were all gone, and so people looked at all of those things again. But then also in 1913, these three church bodies published a hymn book. The Lutheran Hymnary came out in 1913 as the first formal hymn book amongst Norwegian Lutherans, Norwegian American Lutherans. And so now all of a sudden, the congregations in all three of these church bodies are also worshiping with the same hymn book. So we all have the same hymn book. We're all Norwegians. Why shouldn't we be one synod and one church body? And so that was really the arguments that took place itself that were leading to that merger. There were some things that stood in the way. There had been doctrinal divisions between those three church bodies, but they had found agreement very correctly with things such as absolution and what about 
lay preaching, but they did not reach agreement on the doctrine of election. And of course, that is very central to the teaching of justification. Are we saved completely by God's grace alone in Christ or not? An agreement could not be reached on this doctrine of election. That's why any negotiations fell apart in 1910. But in 1912, new committees were elected and very, very quickly it happened that an agreement was reached between those church bodies. It was February 1912, it was in Madison, and it is said that the three synods had their church bells rung throughout the nation in unison, just in celebration of the fact that agreement had been reached. You tell, a, I think, an interesting anecdote in, in the book. I think it's at that 1912 meeting where it's very clear the goal, the purpose of them getting together was to make a, a union uh, happen no matter what. I think, I don't, did they literally lock two people in a room and said, you're going to stay in there until you could find a way to make this election controversy no longer an issue? That's the story that is told. That they took these two guys and locked them in a room and said, don't come out. Till we found an agreement for us. Yeah. Kind of putting the, the horse before, or the wagon before the horse there, uh, I guess, would, would be one way to put it. Um, now, there's a, a Norwegian word, and I'm, I promise to practice this before this. Okay. It's called the, the opior. Did I say that? Very good. Satisfactorily. Okay. Is, what does that word mean? And is that the settlement, or is that the agreement, or is that the word that means merger? It is the word settlement. Okay. Because there was really no agreement with it. This, everyone did not agree when it was done, but they settled accounts, so to speak. The word itself is still used in Denmark, Danish and Norwegian being very similar languages. And it's an accounting word that simply means to balance the accounts. Hmm. And so that is what they were doing at that point in time was taking these two different views of election, God's grace in Christ from eternity or in view of faith and what our attitude might be towards the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And they settled the accounts by balancing them and putting them together. And so that's really what took place with opior. We often in the ELS do refer to it as opior, the settlement is just as good of a term for it. All right. Well, now that I'm one for one, I don't want to risk that that record. I'm just going to call it the settlement uh, for our, our audience cool. for the rest of it. But I'm glad we, we had a chance to talk about that very important term, especially in the history of the, of the ELS. Now, a minority of that Norwegian synod was still uncomfortable with that settlement. Uh, what courses of action did they take and how did they end up... Uh, splintering and dividing even further among themselves. When Opior was first written, it was sent to the district conventions of the Norwegian Synod, and it met with overwhelming approval. Just outstanding so. And the Synod leaders also assured the members that the teachings of the Bible, of the confessions of the Norwegian Synod were well being preserved with Opior. But while that same thing was happening, leaders in the other synods were saying, 
wait up, wait a minute here, that's not right. The Norwegian Synod teaching is not being heralded solely here, but our position still holds true in view of faith. And so it was seen that Opior was not the great document that it was heralded to be. And so there was a very large minority, about a third of the Norwegian Synod and pastors that eventually were protesting against it. They weren't opposed to the merger, but they did not want it to be on a false doctrinal biblical basis. And so they petitioned that the document Opior would be corrected. They made substitute motions at the Synod Convention. They kept bringing this up in repeated ways over and over again. We even had a pastor near Madison, Wisconsin, who began a private publication of a periodical to draw attention to all of this. And so that movement for a while continued to grow. And then all of a sudden it shrank. What happened there was there was some weariness that set in also, but it was obvious the merger was going to take place. This was the majority votes that had taken place. The minority itself was probably going to withdraw from the Synod and not merge. And so finally there was, we would say a subcommittee met in Austin, Minnesota in order to deal with this. And there an additional document was written. That's the one that's known as agreement. It's called the Austin Agreement. And the union committee and representatives from the minority reached this agreement that the minority could enter into the merger on the basis of their own doctrine. Okay, that is what was said. But they said, we cannot change Opior because the votes have already been taken and that's the legal document of agreement. So really the Austin Agreement did nothing. <laughs> but the, the counsel that was given to the minority said, this is a chink in the armor that the majority, that the other synods are acknowledging the correct doctrinal position of the Norwegian Synod and remain and fight as long as you can. And so that is what their intention truly was. But when the minority met, they had somewhat of a semi-formal meeting in January of 1917. The majority of them said, no, the Austin Agreement answers our concerns. We're entering the merger. And so what had been a very, quite a large group in the Norwegian Synod now became a very small group and ultimately became less than two dozen pastors a year later. I think the line in the book was, um, well, we, they're tolerating us, but that means we have to tolerate them. And I think that was their, their issue, correct? That became then the bottom line. Uh, and not not them as people, obviously, but tolerate the what we what they would see and we would see as, as false doctrine. Yeah. Yes. So that was that was early 1917. Do you want to take us through uh, 
what happened in, in June of 1917 and, and how things progressed from there? So in June of 1917, these three church bodies, the Haugi Synod, the United Church, which was the central body, and the Norwegian Synod all merged together. This has been recorded as the greatest celebration amongst Norwegian Lutherans in North America. The tiny minority was still there for the last meetings of the Norwegian Synod. They did protest until the end. And then they met privately and determined to continue in the teachings of the old Synod. And so while the grand celebration merger was taking place in St. Paul, this tiny little group met by themselves in Minneapolis. So in June of 1918, now we're at the centenary date there, uh, a small group of people gathered at uh, Lime Creek Church, which is actually, uh, I think it's the picture of that church is on the logo for your anniversary, is it not? Uh, Correct. The image, uh, so very important uh, symbolism there, uh, Lime Creek Church near Lake Mills, Iowa. Why did people gather there and then what did they accomplish at that time? First of all, they gathered there to continue the work of the old synod and to lay the groundwork for that. But it's very interesting why they were at that particular location. Uh, the Lime Creek Church building is southwest of Elbert Lee, Minnesota. It is just about one mile south of the Minnesota border. It is said that the congregations were so in turmoil who wished to continue in the old Norwegian synod teachings and practice that there were very few places that could host the convention. And of course, the schools, the institutions, everything was gone. When I was in the seminary, President Auberg made the comment that there were only three locations in the nation that would have been strong enough to host the convention. One was Lime Creek here in Northeast Iowa, in Northern Iowa. The other would have been the Jericho and Saudi congregations in Northeast Iowa. And that happens to be my home parish where I grew up. And the third one would have been St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Chicago. So there were very little choices that were available at that point in time. Lime Creek was likely the strongest of those candidates themselves. Now, this was also during World War I. And the governor of Iowa just within a month before the convention, issued what came to be known as the Babel Proclamation, forbidding the use of any language in the state of Iowa other than English for any public gathering, including church services. And so this group met at Lime Creek, one mile south of the Minnesota state line, but for a number of their sessions, they pitched a tent in Minnesota. And they walked the mile north, held their meetings in Norwegian and Minnesota for there were th when there were things that they really wanted to discuss and didn't want a language translation problem and would walk back to the church for their meals and walk back to Minnesota for the meeting. <laughs> the formal organization may have taken place in Minnesota, except that it rained. <laughs> 
And so that day's session had to take place in the church building in Iowa. So that's just an interesting yeah. part of the story. There so, were, yeah. So uh, I'm just going to make a little pun here, but yeah, if the weather had been different, you might have a tent on your logo instead of a church huh? for the. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that would just be the case. Yeah. We have record of 13 pastors that were in attendance because there was a picture that was taken. So we know those names for sure. There was a roll call that, re that exists from that convention, but we don't have the names of any more clergy. There is a firsthand account, however, that says that there were 16 clergy that were in attendance. There were a few that maybe didn't want their congregations to know they were there yet, or just didn't show up for the roll call or the photograph itself. In, at Lime Creek in 1918, this group resolved to reorganize themselves on the basis of the old synod. They did not consider that they were then a new church body. And the following year in 1919 would be the constituting convention and they adopted the old constitution with only a few necessary changes themselves. The Norwegian Synod was known often simply as the Synod and even the name of this reorganized body reflected that as being the Norwegian Synod of the American Evangelical Lutheran Church. And so they considered very much that they were a, a continuation. And this was in view of, you know, saying we are the legitimate carriers of what that old synod represented as far as its doctrine and practice, right? They're saying, no, the other people have left. We're actually the ones staying in the same, same place. Yes. Yeah. The property was gone. The institutions were gone. But this group said, but with us remains the doctrine and the teaching. So what challenges and opportunities did the, the smaller reorganized Lutheran, uh, Norwegian Lutheran Synod face in its early years? Having lost all of those things, the size of this, small, this body was now very, very small and very reduced. And so that was a big challenge. How do you start over again with few numbers? No college, no seminary no high school. Many of the congregations that existed were minority groups of other congregations that had entered into the merger itself. Some of them had also lost their church buildings. And so it was beginning over again, really with nothing. The group became known it was even ridiculed, and this would have become a challenge also, as the Little Synod. And where today that term has become almost a term of endearment, but that was not the case for the first half of the reorganized synod's history. The president of the merged church body at one point in time denigrated the ELS by saying, they are such a tiny little body. 
They are just a little synod and don't even deserve to exist. And so the term little synod or little Norwegian synod began to be used by those outside of the ELS as a derogatory term itself. And the ELS was small. It was so tiny that in our synod reports, they didn't even print any statistical information for the first 10 years so that no one in the public would know how tiny this church body really, really was. And so those were challenges that existed, but a little bit different in that we, of course, had the message itself that it existed through the Norwegian Synod, the message of the gospel. And I want to read just a quick quotation that came from S.C. Jolvesacker, who became later the first president of Bethany College. He said, a small body such as our synod still enjoys certain privileges and advantages. The pastors are on terms of intimate friendship, as well as connected by ties of a common faith. The laity is not as yet vast in number where the individual cannot be heard. We are, as it were, one family. And how very, very true that was. That was the opportunity as the group came to move forward. Decisions were not difficult. We were one group united in thought and in all that was going to happen. And then, too, as the first president of the Synod said, we did not have quite to start over again in that we had Wisconsin Synod and Missouri Synod there at our side. And they continued to be sister church bodies and they opened their institutions to us for Christian day school teachers, for training of pastors. And so that was a great blessing to the early days of the Synod. So how did the ELS endeavor to preserve that unity of faith so central to its identity and existence? Well, this thought of being with Wisconsin and Missouri Synod was very, very important to its identity, to that existence. In 1919, right away at the Constituting Convention, the ELS voted to rejoin the Synodical Conference and in 1920 joined the Synodical Conference, was received in the Synodical Conference. We had never been out of fellowship with Missouri and Wisconsin Synod since 1872 when the Synodical Conference was formed. The old Norwegian Synod did withdraw in the 1880s, but did not break fellowship with Missouri and Wisconsin. And so that fellowship continued onward. And now by formally rejoining the Synodical Conference was a great expression of that unity of faith. Those annual conventions that Yulvasakar referred to, and we still continue to hold annual conventions, were very much a family feeling. But at those conventions, there were numerous essays that were presented. Whereas today our synods often have a single essayist and maybe a single essay that is there for edification and discussion. In those early days, there would be three, four different essays that were presented. And so the 
unity of the faith and in doctrine was stressed and nurtured at that point in time. Christian day schools were very important to the ELS. And there, a little bit of Norwegian history might be important. Unlike German Lutheran churches, Norwegian congregations did not necessarily establish Christian day schools. The Norwegian immigrants wanted to be truly American and they wanted their children trained in American schools and in the English language. And they considered anything else to be un-American. And so through the history of the old synod, pastors promoted Christian day schools and parishioners opposed them. But by the time of the merger, there were 14 Christian day schools throughout the entire Old Synod, very few. Quickly after the merger, of those 14, 11 of them went into the merger, 13 with three of them with congregations that did not enter the merger. The 11 that entered the merger quickly closed. The ELS continued with the Christian day schools still in existence from the old synod and sought very diligently to increase that, enlarge that number of schools. And there got to be quite a large number of Christian day schools for training in the faith, preserving the faith itself. And then an interesting story comes with the publication of the synod, which was in Norwegian, the Lutheran Tidenda, in English, the Lutheran Sentinel. And that was, twice, was issued twice a month. And so members had quite constant communication and contact with the synod, what was happening with doctrine, with teaching. But in the old Norwegian synod, the name of the publication in Norwegian was Luther's Cherkatinda, Lutheran Church News. The ELS could not continue to use that name, even though the paper no longer existed. And so they had a tricky little thing that they did in that they called it Lutheran Tidenda, Lutheran News, but put a picture of a church between Lutheran mm -hmm. and News. So if you would read it with the church building in it, you had Lutheran Church News, the same as that of the old synod. Well, by copyright or legally, you weren't using the name. So the Sentinel became a very, very important means of contact and a unifying element for the Synod. Now you mentioned um, that there was some connection and support from the Wisconsin and Missouri Synods in those early days. Uh, do you have anything else do you want to say about the relationships with other Lutherans as they were moving away from uh, their uh, fellow Norwegian American Lutherans? Uh, what did that landscape look like? This was also right, remember 1917, 1918, we're right at the end of World War One, And so in 1918, the National Lutheran Council was formed. And what occurred with the National Lutheran Council is the large Norwegian body that had been formed in 1917 entered the National Lutheran Council. And that also included then members of the more liberal Eastern Lutheran synods of the United States. 
And for the minority then that form the ELS, that simply confirmed in their minds that the Norwegian merger of the year before was really based on unionism and not on true agreement and doctrine. And so any distinction that had existed before that time became very, very clear with here stands the Synodical Conference on one side and congregations belonging to the National Lutheran Council on the other, and there got to be a very distinct line drawn within Lutheranism. At this point, we'll take a break from our interview today and take up part two in 15 days. So far, I hope you've enjoyed this look at a brief history of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod.